The Academic Podcast Agency. Hello and welcome to Why Tell Stories, episode two. We are back again, giving it another go. My name's Will Hood. I am an audio anthropologist, sometime filmmaker, documentarian and podcast maker. And I'm Daniel Marcus Clark. I'm a storyteller, story lover and director of creative programme at the Story Museum in Oxford. So what have we got for them today, Dan? We're going to have a little listen to a piece that we made a long time ago called Moment Catcher, which is a story with strings and then have a chat around some of the whatever it brings up lovely and so this is one of the trilogy of which we played the first one uh, in the last episode that's correct yeah but it's a yeah. lot shorter isn't it it's like five minutes something yeah it sits more in that kind of song format it's four verses slash chapters um but a spoken word piece with a narrative structure i've got a feeling it was made maybe 12 years ago this piece but it was, okay. it was it was hanging around for a little while before it got recorded okay cool all right shall we get on with it and have a listen why not all right here we go Let me introduce Arthur Higgins. He's 36 years old. He's worked hard all his life and always done as he was told. And the story starts now on this most momentous of times with the birth of his firstborn, the heir to his line. At the birth, his wife is screaming. She's dilating and pushing. The midwife section stations while Arthur's just on looking, holding a camera in hand, trying to film the inception so that some days it can sit on a shelf next to the tapes of child's conception and his wife is screaming. She wants Arthur's hand, but the camera needs holding and he's forgot the stand. Anyway, you'd be pleased that we've got this, he says, when this moment is over. And he pats on the camera and pops it back on his shoulder and so it's through lens that he watches the birth of new life as he zooms in on sweat beads upon the head of his wife. And he focuses on the vulva as his daughter arrives. For soon he'll date tape and label it birth of Madeline. You're only a human once, you know, moment catcher. You're only a human once, you know. Well, in no time at all, his daughter's turned three and then his wife hears news that she's pregnant again and some more tapes are constructed of bellies expanding mother and daughter smiling occasional shots with Arthur's hand in waving from behind the camera as he lives behind the lens like some sort of silent spectator in a play that he has penned and in the months that ensue another child arrives this time it's the son, and Arthur's there by wife's side, this time with a tripod, so he can wipe her head if she gets hot. They're regularly running back to the lens, just to check they're both in shot, and when son first walked or spoke, Arthur was there with his camcorder, collecting and collating, to then put in order, of moments on shelves, and soon new shelves are erected, to cope with all the moments that his camera had directed, and moments that weren't filmed, wasted, 
Because how can you enjoy a moment if you can't label and date it? You're only human ones, you know, mama catcher. You're only human ones, you know. Well, his family's grown up now. His daughter's 16 years old. Her GCSEs are completed and her A-levels chose. And one brightly Sunday morning, the results arrive. Through the letterbox they pop, and Arthur's straight by her side, with his camera in hand, trying to film her reaction, her disappointment or pride, her awareness of fractions. She gets upset and she storms off. Arthur follows. For if I collect joys, he says, then why not sorrows? So he films her as she storms upstairs and slams the door and as she screams, Why the fuck do you film everything for? I just wish to collect them all, my love, since I've started, so that someday these tapes will remain when our memories have departed and then we can enjoy them all over again. But he's not enjoying them now. It's just distilling disdain and resentment in his daughter, son and wife who wish less for these tapes than a dad in their life. You're only human once, you know, moment catcher. You're only human once, you know. Well, the final verse of this story takes place in Arthur's home. Six years from the last verse, now Arthur lives alone. His wife and his kids have flown the nest, so to speak. His kids many years ago, and his wife just last week. Well, the curtains are drawn, the whiskey's out, even though it's the day. Arthur is sat in his pants watching tapes of moments he collected before his life slipped away. Child's first steps, birthdays, rows with his wife, dirty weekends away, 30 years of existence unfold before eyes that only now can see clear into these folds of his life. For not concerned now with framing or the right kind of light, his eyes see mistakes but too late to put right. But surely he's happy. He's watching his precious tapes and realities are just the choices we've chosen to make. I mean, surely he's happy. He's getting to watch his tapes and our realities are just the choices we've at some point chosen to make. You're only a human once, you know. It's been a while. It's beautiful. I think that's really beautiful. The um, the strings are very, very warm in that. That was um, a guy called Mike Simmons, who I work with Mm. quite a lot. He's just did a beautiful job. I just got handed over to him and just, you know, just run with it. And he did a a brilliant job of of bringing it to life. He's he's definitely done a good job. Um, Who's singing the chorus with you? A singer called Stack, um, who I 
for a little while played double bass for and I just wanted wanted there to be a, a kind of sweet female voice on it so I, I asked her so she's done a great job she's a great harmony singer yeah sounds very lovely I think it's I mean it's interesting hearing it because it was obviously very much before this kind of point in social media where we're where it's sort of commonplace to document one's life and that there's an end point for it that we're sharing it kind of constantly so it becomes almost a different reality so I had a thought about that when um, when I was trying to work out the dates, because in the previous episode of the piece Bully that was made roughly around the same time, yeah. you were throwing out 15 years, which would have put us at 2007, which feels about right. Maybe it was yeah, a little think, bit later. I think Bully was written in about 2007. Okay. And then the recording of them happened... I think probably 2011, 2012. So okay, so a little a later. Yeah, Moment Catcher was probably written around 2009, I reckon. Okay. Well, the point I was going to make, which still stands, is that the first smartphone was 2007. So the first, wow. uh, you know, which would have been an iPhone, the, the unleashing of the iPhone on the world. And it occurred to me that that's quite a neat... Uh, if you wanted to put a flag in the historical landscape of when shit got real for everybody is now documenting everything all the time. That was the beginning, right? And I should think not many people had, um, you know, the iPhones right at the beginning. But there was definitely something changed, I think, with personal technology at that point. Definitely. And it was, and I think probably around the time that I wrote it, there was a point where I was witnessing other people documenting aspects of their life. I didn't have mm. a I didn't have a phone, certainly not a smartphone, until I was in my thirties. So I managed to stay away from mobile phones for a long time, which now seems very strange. I, I remember seeing the first iPhone and and having this really clear sense of I I cannot go near it because it's so consuming. Mm. And I was thinking about this the other day, I was talking to someone, and it's like, it does strike me that these are kind of, they're like a modern fire, you know, that we, they're so bright and they're these kind of flickering lights that we hold in our hands and, you know, the same with TVs and things that I think they sort of take over. They take something over and and I definitely was more productive when I didn't have technology around me. Oh, I think we all were. Yeah. Yeah. But there's that slow creeping curve though, isn't it? I mean, Mm. the difference between the first mobile phones and the smartphone seems to me to be that kind of conversation that uh, people generations older than us perhaps have about weed. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, right, back, yeah. it, back in the day, smoking a little bit of grass was fine, but now these kids on their trumped-up super skunks, yeah, I mean, it's got that kind of hyper-on-crack kind of feel, isn't it? Every, everything's getting stronger, isn't it? And I think... So thinking back, I was definitely observing people filming and documenting aspects of their lives, be it, be it as parents or just individuals. Mm. And to me, it felt strange. I was very much an outsider at that point from that technology and that kind of that revolution that was happening. And I th- thinking back, the story was very much that kind of classic cautionary tale of, or, you know, I was using sci-fi, of, of taking a thread of a behaviour and pulling it and going, where does it lead? You know, what happens if you keep going down this rabbit hole? What is at the end of it? But in this story, it ends up as a kind of, as a sad tale for Arthur Higgins. Yeah, so my memory of it, 
before I listened to it was okay. It's a uh, it's got this kind of dark cautionary tale um, element to it. But then when I listened back, one of the things I found interesting is that it doesn't explicitly uh, communicate how sad it is. You know, it really just says that he's on his own and that his child has left. Okay. And so although they had a row, you know, that's perhaps not uncommon in families. (laughs) And, And so she's left and okay, maybe she was old enough. And he's also broken up with his wife and he's sat there. But I remember it being a lot sadder than that explicitly. However, Mm. the power of it, I think, and why I was left with this sad impression, which has carried with me all all these years, is that the idea of somebody uh, sat looking at their happy memories is inherently a sad story. And I've Mm. I've, I've been thinking about that, and I think that's, that's quite interesting, right? Like happy memories... Ah, uh, there's a melancholy to them. Do you have any thoughts yeah. about that? Yeah, I think oh, it's a big one, isn't it? You've opened up a big, <laughs> you've opened up a big, a big bucket. Is there a melancholy to happy memories? I guess so. I mean, I think I think it's there's a melanc for me. There's a melancholy to it in the shape of this story because he's never actually enjoyed them or be present in them at the time. And of and course, that's what's that's implied, the, that he's not yeah. been present. Yeah. And and I think that's that's the danger, isn't it? That we that we focus on the veil rather than you know, rather than the view. And and so uh, I think that's uh, I don't you know, I, I love I've now got two kids. I'm now yeah. I'm now a parent and I do film things, you know, I I film things and document moments because I don't want to forget them in the same way as the character in the story. Right. And when I look back on them, it fills me with warmth. I, I okay. enjoy them. But the sadness in the story comes from this kind of sense, this kind of obsession. I guess that's the point, isn't it? It's a, it's to collect at the, um, at the detriment of, of living. It's a very interesting psychology, you know, which... I don't, and you know, neither of us have the answers for, but we're obviously moving through it culturally. And I guess inside this story, what is implied is that the central character, the protagonist, doesn't ever engage with the brilliance, is just kind of collecting mm. it and capturing yeah. it for, and it, you know, it keeps saying for another time. It's all for another time. Right. Yeah, I think, and, yeah, that's the point. It's the kind of postponed reality or something yeah. like that. So yeah. another thought that I had uh, on listening to it, which you I'm sure will relate to, is that we have both had quite a lot of experience of playing music to people, you know, and, and performing and being that person that stands up and says, look at me, look at me. So you're you're kind of welcoming in some respects uh, yourself as a spectacle. And I'm sure you've had this, but I'll describe it from my point of view and you can chip in. But, you know, a lot of people, perhaps understandably, they want to take photographs or they want to take video of the music, you know, and of you playing in the music. And for anybody that's not regularly been on the other side of that, it's quite a crazy thing because you see all these people, but where their face is or should be, 
there's a phone, there's a screen, and and sometimes mm. it's even with iPads. So their their whole heads are sometimes obscured, and you do sometimes get this sense that you're being kind of viewed by a our robotic uh, automated overlords. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. So many times. So yeah. <laughs> so many times from playing. You you do think, why are you postponing this? You know, you want to grab yeah. them and say, is this not a good time for you right now? You know, it's as if they're kind of avoiding the moment and they want to kind of capture it and watch it later on. But it's, I think I think it's more than that. Now, I think at this point in time, I think it's very interesting because it's there's another moment that's happening or there's another moment that's about to happen, which is those individuals will upload it and there'll be another interaction that happens online mm. for other people who weren't even there. And so I think for me at this point in time, this story is interesting because it captures a moment where we had the means but not the output. And so... Now it's changed. Now someone would be collecting something and it would be straight up online, it would be straight up on social media, it would be straight... People would be interacting with it. Well, in theory, but who on earth has the time, whether you've taken the footage or not, to, you know, to be Mr Higgins sat there watching all this material, Mm. right? You know, and that's the kind of uh, almost unacknowledged but fully known futility of it isn't it in many cases i mean it's not to say that nothing that's filmed isn't put online or or viewed by people and enjoyed but by far the majority of it is Mm. just this digital detritus that we have in our lives absolutely and uh, i guess you know in reflection the the refrain that comes around, you know, we're only human once you know, is kind of alluding to that in a way. It's it's yours and it's yours to experience. You know, these moments are your experiences and, and they hold less of a poignancy and a magic in memory, especially not cerebral memory, but digital memory. You know, when you when you remember something, your your brain is you know, it's processing it, it's connecting with it, it's, they, they're sporadic, they come up, you don't, you don't plan what memory you're going to remember. Whereas the sort of digital domain, this thing of capturing moments, is then we're, what are we doing with them? Why are we, why are we even bothering collecting them? Have you ever come across um, a really special book called uh, On Photography by Susan Sontag? I have not. Tell me. Okay. Really, really fascinating. She's, um, for anybody that doesn't know of her, she's this uber cool, I think, gay uh, intellectual. I guess we're in New York in the 50s. She used to hang out with Warhol um, and is part of all that scene. But she wrote a book called On Photography. And then I think later, maybe a decade later, uh, a book called Regarding the Pain of Others. And it completely blew my mind when I read it. But she basically talks about the emergence of the first photograph Mm. and what it does to, uh, or or I guess she's reflecting upon the effect that it has upon both psychology, but also on art. Mm. Um, And it goes, when someone paints something or creates a likeness, a piece of art, everybody viewing it accepts that it's an interpretation of the event. Right. Mm. But with photography, it crossed some kind of invisible line where people start believing it's the real thing. Mm. When, of course, with any interrogation, it's a creative act as well, you know, and you've caught a, a very precise 
moment, but it's not the thing itself. So it, it's a long um, piece really about representation and authenticity, which is wow. super interesting. But what she talks a lot about is this idea that actually a photograph is a souvenir. So people go to places and they bring back these souvenirs so they can show it to other people. So it's not for themselves. It's to demonstrate to their people that they have been somewhere, that they felt something that they interacted with, um, almost to validate themselves. Again, I mean, this is quite meta, but it's another way of, uh, of storytelling. Right. You know, it's this idea that you can capture uh, the moment, the story, and then give it to other people, perhaps. Yeah, that's fascinating. And really resonates with that thing, you you know, we're talking about around people at concerts recording things. And it's and I think the same thing happens for people with with albums that you love, that that recording of that song is the song rather than it's a moment. And it's fascinating seeing seeing kids with stories that have been around for, you know, thousands of years, hundreds, thousands of years, saying, no, but Cinderella looked like this because that's what Disney did. It defines things too much in our brains. It's too too unarguable. Mm. And I guess it's a whole industry that's been built around an illusion, essentially, about building illusions. Yes, yes, certainly. Well, um, I think there's something in there, isn't there, that... uh, memories that aren't digitized have a fluidity to them as they're passed from people to people or stories Mm. that aren't digitized. But once you actually create this artifact, once you've decided that the digitized version, it's not an interpretation, right? It's not a creative act. It's the actual thing. Mm. And I think that's fascinating. And and the fact that that I, that memories morph and grow and evolve over time, over tellings and yes. over sharing. There's a, a fascinating. There's an artist called um, Luc Pelletier, who's a um, sort of visual artist, an illustrator, who did an illustration of um, of a um, his father when he was a child caught an alligator, and he wrote this piece about how he remembered it being this huge, great big alligator you know, this great big thing that his father had kind of wrestled to the ground and somehow managed to tame. And he found a photo of it and he posted next to this illustration of it, this photo. And this thing's just a lizard. But somehow in the retelling, <laughs> and you know, that it's become part of the family folklore that, oh, dad yeah. did this and do you remember when? And I'm sure the father perpetuated it as well. But uh, which is nicer? In some ways, it's it's lovely to let these things have an organic shape, right? Okay, well, so... I'm thinking whilst we've we've gone off, uh, not on a tangent, but on this line of inquiry, is there a difference between memories and stories? Is there a difference between memories and stories? Because it seems to me, now that we're talking about it this way, that in order to construct or even share a memory... Um, even if you're perhaps sharing it with yourself, you know, retelling it to yourself, you're thinking about the huge alligator or you're telling somebody else, you need to put form to it, right? There needs to be some kind of descriptive creation that you're involved in. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think in the sharing of memories, it does become a story. But the one word that springs to mind, and this is specifically around fiction storytelling, is agency Mm. and that 
in the creation of a story, much as it may start from a memory, you're allowed to make choices in it and you're allowed to do things differently and differently from how you would have done it. Whereas in a memory, you're sort of bound by your flaws in some ways. Not completely, but you're bound by some sort of reality. Okay, that's interesting. So in the case of the alligator, which I like that, uh, the fact that that story got carried away, and we've all done that, you know, we get to the point where actually it didn't quite happen like that, but it's a better story, you know. Do you know, my my father um, passed away a, a, a few years ago and he was 82 when he died. But he said towards the end of his life, his memory changed and he started remembering moments from early in his life with a vividity that he'd never encountered before, mm-hmm. whereby he could remember um, the light, he could remember the smells, the kind of sense, the feel of the air. Whether those were exactly as it was before, there was something that happened towards the, in the last chapter of his life where his brain sort of reconjured these very vivid moments that he thought he had gone. And I wonder um, how much of our obsession with capturing moments is around a fear of losing them, a fear of forgetting them. That That's really interesting. Um, I, I want to know more about that. So the, these sensory memories that he was having, were they from an earlier time or when were these memories from? There was, he, he described it though from a very early in his life. So, you know, when he was, when he was sort of pre-20, you know, in, in the very early stage of his life. And there's, I kind of often think of this, that there's, there's points in my life that I think I can't, I have no memory from that period, you know. But then that's not to say that you'll always have no memory of it. Right, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, you know, the and idea maybe that... These, and, and maybe these things, there's an organicness to them and there's something in our the functioning of our brains that needs... There's different times when we have the space and the need to process these things. And again, you would insist, uh, would you, that these are memories and not stories and that there is a qualitative difference between the two? I think a memory is a story in its retelling. Mm. I think, you know, because because a story has to be communicated. A, A story that's kept to yourself... Yes, it could still be defined as a story you tell to yourself, but you're telling it to yourself. This idea that, um, because clearly your subconscious holds all sorts of things from your waking life, right? Otherwise your head would just be unmanageable. Um, And so I'm intrigued by this idea that these memories or stories would revisit you at Mm. a time where perhaps it's more appropriate or perhaps you're more accepting or more ready for them um but it seems to me that you know that internal dialogue that you have with yourself you know and and perhaps it's unnecessary to call it um a story but it's definitely a kind of narrative of sorts isn't it Hmm. um and the idea that that could be better for you at certain times in your life is, I think, very, very fascinating. I had a great aunt um, who died at at the age of 96, um, about five or six years ago now. She was a huge character in my life. Um, 
But she was born in India. She was born as one of the last daughters of the Raj. So she was out there. Her father was a military man. Um, my great, great grandfather, I guess. But she was put on a boat at the age of six back to England because that's what they did. She was to go to school. And because of the thoughts about parenting at the time, her mother wouldn't hug her goodbye. And she was put on a boat. Can you imagine this at the age of six across the ocean to go to a country that she'd never been to? Um, but before she died at the age of 96, and there was a little bit of dementia involved in that she would often retell the same stories in those last few years. But she would retell that story and it would still, you know, have this huge emotional hold on her. And I just find it really powerful that at the end of her life, you know, that was the big moment that she never really managed to process that. Mm. It's amazing how these things stay with us. And, and what mm. a poignant moment. It struck me as well hearing you speak that in the telling of that, it became a story. Yeah. You know, because it became, it, in, it became not just hers and not just yours. And equally, I'd imagine when she told you her memories and she shared them, they became stories. But for her, they were memories. So I think that's the different. For me, there is a differentiation in the fact that it's there isn't uh, there is a gift, there is a giving act. Okay, so it's in, in the sharing. It, it's in the sharing, but also in the structuring. Sorry, memories innately don't really have a structure other than one of linear time, and and that it can be one simple moment, something as that that someone else sees as throwaway that becomes almost the the sort of guiding the guiding thing for that person's existence right yeah you know? yeah 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 i was talking to a friend recently and uh about, around a similar subject i suppose but he said to me and i just thought it's a great way to phrase it do you remember a time when there was such a thing as media scarcity mm. and it's a lovely phrase. And, and I think what he was talking about is that, do you remember a time when, you know, getting that VHS video or, or buying an album, um, you know, was a really special thing because it was scarce, right? You know, you only had so many albums that you could listen to, or you only had so many films. And so there was a, like a currency to it, mm. which perhaps isn't there now. So I wonder if, there's something in the story with our Mr. Higgins where, you know, he's so overwhelmed by the magic of the technology and, and is dealing with a, a mind really that, that thinks it's scarce, you know, that he could actually capture mm. this moment. You know, can't get over that it's a special thing and so is compelled to do it again and again and again. Mm. I think I think there's probably... There probably is an element of that for him as a character that there's, you know, and it does reference this kind of fascination and this this huge focus on the form or of you know of getting the moment right of capturing it right. Yeah, and I think it's coming from a place. I think it's coming from a love of his family, which is which is clear, which is the you know the driver to capture these things. But I think it's coming from a fear that it's not enough if you don't catch it. You know, it's not enough just to be there and it's a fear of things going. And so that's why this story is sad at the end is because things have gone and he's left with what he thought he wanted, but yeah. it wasn't actually what he needed. 
It's complicated, though, isn't it? I mean, in the in the bigger sense, because things are always going to disappear. You know, situations and and families they do come to an end. So, I'm just wondering in a hypothetical universe where this fictional character hasn't documented um, his family in this way, is it a sadder story that he wouldn't be there with his tapes? I don't know. I think this comes down to the thing that we were talking about before, that in, in that a story is not just about the memory, it's in the sharing and it's in the structuring of a memory or relaying that and structuring that, that it becomes something else. And so with the story being created comes the story being received and that's the other 50%. You know, as, as someone who's making something, you only do 50% of it. You do 50% of the work in that you kind of get something on its feet and you put it out there. The other 50% is done by the listener or the mm. person who's engaging with it. And so in some ways, these questions are as much mine to answer as they are yours, as they are whoever's listening to this. I don't know what the answers are. I suppose there's that, uh, that hypothetical question of whether stories are richer if they're not captured in in how in whatever form but in this sense it's a kind of digital capturing isn't it mm. whether somehow they're fuller without that and that they're out there in the ether i don't know their past between people's memories uh you know which we would have been doing for you know thousands hundreds of thousands of years or whether they are even richer still by this idea of capturing them somehow mm. of of putting them down into either words or into photographs or into, you know, films? I think it's a really interesting question. And I think we're at a point in time where there's a huge fascination with what's, with things that are right, you know, with definitive versions of things. And the sad, some of the sadness for me in this story comes from the fact that, you know, and answer your question, if he was, you know, in the same situation, but with just his memories and he didn't have any, collections of them he didn't hadn't captured them but they he would see them as he sees them you don't want to see it all you don't want to remember every detail you you just want to remember oh i remember that lovely moment or i remember that or i remember that you don't actually want to see this like you know you're remembering a a beautiful romantic moment that the other person was actually quite bored so isn't that fascinating in that you you're describing a process there by which, and I think we all do it, by which you're kind of editing an internal cachet of memory. You know, you're, for whatever reason, because certain bits have resonance for you, you know, whether that be good or bad, you know, clearly the world isn't full of people telling themselves wonderful stories about what's happened to them. But certain things we decide are more important than others. Um, and there's this editing process that we do with our memories, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is. <laughs> and we, <laughs> yes, oh yeah, I guess you know, I guess there is, and we, um, and yet we're slightly obsessed with reality, and yet we kind of feel tricked by this thing that's happening now, where people are putting filters on themselves, or. Oh. I'm I'm you know, so confused. I mean, I'm confused by this conversation, but more and more, yeah, I'm confusing. confused by by the purpose of people presenting themselves uh, online. You know, and and 
I mean, I can't really do it. I don't really do Facebook. I do Instagram a little. But it seems to me there's this kind of crazy feedback loop between the two factors, which I think you're talking about, you know, the teller of the story, the sharer of the memory, and then that half the work that is done by the receiver. Um, the multiple uh, back and forths between that, that our kind of fever pitch digitized reality seems to create. To me, it's just so much white noise. Mm. Um, I can't really spend much time with it. It, it makes me feel very anxious. I don't know if what your relationship with social media is like. I, I find it very weird. I mean, and I think, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier with media scarcity, we're in a time where people are, more people than ever are telling stories, which is really exciting. But because there's more people than ever telling them, there's fewer people than ever to listen. And our attention is pulled in so mm. many different directions. And it, there's there's something fascinating in that as well. As as we define film in some way as some sort of reality, and yet people are capturing more and more moments of their lives and manipulating those moments, editing them, you know, filtering them, you know, curating them very much. What does that do to real memory as well? What happens to people, you know, when they hit 80 and they're thinking back on their life, how much of it is they, they're like, that's actually how it was? And not remembering the process that they went through to make that memory happen. Well, they were probably too busy updating their Instagram stories, of weren't they? Yeah, which is very much like our man Higgins, who was actually too busy filming, making content, right? Uh, but fascinating both in this story and in the story that you told of your great aunt, Yeah, that the thing that we're left with is not the thing that we've wanted to portray about ourselves, but it's the kind of truth underneath it. It's clearly a very confusing line of inquiry to separate memories from storytelling. Um, and I'm not sure we've done a completely convincing job. <laughs> uh, I feel more confused than when we started. And uh, I'm going to go off and lie down in a dark room with a cold flannel over my face and try and uh, think about what we've done here today. I guess it's a, it's a complicated little beast, this thing around story and memory. But also, equally, you know, it is messy. It's a messy subject. You know, it might be that, that you're listening and you're thinking, actually, no, it's, you know, it's the start of a conversation. We're up for hearing your thoughts on this. We'll try and put a uh, meaningful links to all of the references, perhaps not all of them, but uh, most of the ones that we think are uh, salient in the show notes. And yeah, if you like what you've heard, then please get in touch encourage us uh give us enthusiasm for episode three which is going to be the final of the trilogy yes and then the third one the uh, the piece that we'll be listening to in the next episode is called comedy excellent all right so this is the end of episode two i've had a good time despite having confused myself and uh i'll see you soon Dan. see you soon well take right, care man.